Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios with financial advice columnist Elizabeth Spires. <laughs> hello. With Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. We are going to talk about the U.S. economy and why it's doing so well. And Emily has an astonishing five-part list, which explains everything. This is all you need to listen to to understand the world. We are going to talk about Universal Music Group and their fight with TikTok. We are going to talk about Lyft and its earnings typo. We have a Slate Plus segment about chocolate chip ice cream, which is revelatory. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so Emily, I want to take this whole really boring discourse of the vibe session and like why is why are americans unhappy when the economy is good we are not going to have that conversation because it's boring as all hell at this point and we've had it a million times but i want to have a related conversation which is why is america so healthy economically speaking when all of the other countries in the developed world aren't we have two major economies that are actually in recession now japan and the uk both had negative GDP prints for both the third quarter and the fourth quarter of 2023. And if you look across, you know, Europe and the rich world generally, no one seems to be doing that well. And so my question for you is like, is this just amazing American exceptionalism? Is America just special? Well, first of all, I want to say USA, USA, <laughs> USA. Okay, there got go. that out of the way. Mm -hmm. Now I have... I have five reasons for you, okay? Number one, we had a lot of stimulus money that we spent during the COVID recession. Um, the other wealthy nations don't compare. I think we spent $5 trillion. Um, that money went to the people, the peeps, and the businesses, and that money got spent and saved and invested, and it was a big deal. The economic stimulus actually did its job, and it stimulated the economy. Yes. And just to be very clear about this, it's really weird but true that 
America was much better at doing economic stimulus than anywhere in Europe. Europe has this reputation for being this sort of tax and spend utopia. But in fact, there are lots of constraints on what governments can do there, partly because of the fact that they all have to share a currency. And so the amount of economic stimulus and fiscal stimulus that you saw in the EU is really small by comparison. So that's a good one. I like that one. All right. Rolling on, number two. At number two, we have energy. The U.S. is an energy exporter. And that came in handy when there was a big war that started two years ago when Russia invaded Ukraine and energy prices shot up astronomically. And that really, really hurt the other wealthy nations, especially those European ones, that import energy. And that really, really hit those economies hard. And we, yes, gas prices went up a lot. My oil bill went up a lot. All of that is true, but we were relatively insulated in comparison. Especially vis-a-vis the UK, where energy prices have skyrocketed. Right, and and the UK used to be an energy exporter and isn't anymore. And yeah, if if you produce your own energy, then you're more or less insulated. Now, it is true that energy is fungible. You know, there is a sort of global price of oil, and if you can sell it for more in Europe, you will. So higher energy prices in one country, basically, are always reflected by higher energy prices everywhere. But to Emily's point, if you're an exporter, you're just making lots of money and you're going, hey, we're pumping all of this oil and gas and we're selling it around the world and we're selling it domestically and we're happy. If you're an importer, you just have much less control and you just wind up sending that money to the exporters like America. Yes. Number three. (laughs) Number three, immigration. Immigration. We have it. I know it's controversial. I know that our leaders don't know how to deal with it. But at the end of the day, we have immigrants coming here, especially after you know lockdown ended. And those workers have really helped keep the economy booming. I think Chair Powell sp- spoke about immigration in the labor market recently. The CBO just came out and said that GDP is going to be $7 trillion bigger thanks to the unexpectedly high amount of immigration. You would think between that and the pro-natalists, the conservatives would be very happy about this, but no. Well, I mean, yeah, I think the discourse around immigration is messy as fuck, and it has been completely dominated by the discourse about the southern border, which is related but is not by any means, the full immigration story. There's been a lot of good old-fashioned legal immigration into the United States, which has just done wonders for the economy. And when you have a super tight labor market like we do, you need all the help you can get, basically. And the immigration is just feeding straight through into increased economic output. And you can make a comparison to Japan, which economy has shrunk. And they one of their key problems is they have a shrinking population and very low immigration. And the U.S., our population isn't exactly going gangbusters either, but immigration helps with that and offsets also our aging population. Um, and it's really important for the economy and for the labor market. Although, to be clear, the domestic birth rate in the United States, like if, if you are an American woman, like how many children you expect to have in your lifetime is way higher than it is in virtually any European country or Japan. So, you know, even if it's dropped below replacement rate, you know, the domestic population and just giving birth to new babies situation is, comparatively speaking, much stronger in the United States. And the United States is a much younger country than most of Europe and certainly much younger than Japan. 
Yeah. Okay, number four. In at number four, and this will be politically controversial, I guess, is the Biden administration's signature legislation, the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the CHIPS Act. I feel like the, infra- I feel like the infra- Inflation Reduction Act was generally accepted to be fiscal stimulus. That was kind of how we managed to get it through. Okay. Well, you can argue about that one. But the other two have spurred construction, manufacturing, They've spurred development of, you know, green economy stuff. There's a lot of building going on that wouldn't otherwise be built and a lot of innovating going on that wouldn't otherwise have been innovative. We can argue more about this one. It's not as clear, but the Biden administration would certainly tell you this is part of the story. And so if and if that's true, and I'm kind of with you that it's really hard to tell, that will have shown up in economic growth with astonishing speed. Normally, like, you know, something like the CHIPS Act is passed on a sort of 10, 15 year time horizon. Like we want to become big in computer chips and, you know, and start competing with Taiwan again over the next two decades. And now we're like, well, actually it's showing up in like Q4 economic growth. Well, I mean, one one place you can see it, and I've written about a little bit, is in the construction of new manufacturing. Factories. We are building factories. And again, that is not something you're seeing in Japan. Right. So that's number four. Five. The best till last. Number five. Labor churn, babies. In the European countries, when COVID first hit and everyone was going to lose their jobs, and I think we talked about this on the podcast, in many of the European countries, they basically, they pulled policy levers so people didn't lose their jobs. They stayed attached to their employers. In the US, you know how we are. So we are... Every, all the employers just fired everybody. We had unemployment, was it like 25% or something? Everyone lost their jobs. And there was this amazing, what happened subsequently, is this amazing labor churn. People got better jobs. Everyone kind of shifted. You know, There was a great resignation. There was a great reshuffle. And a lot of people wound up with higher paying, better jobs. And that turns out to be a really good thing for the economy. And you know, I, at the time, I thought it was horrendous. But now it seems like kind of worked out. I feel like we're skimming over my amazing insight in the Phoenix economy far too quickly here. The point being that the the European welfare state was very good at and is very good at protecting people's jobs. So if you have a big shock like COVID, then the government basically gives money to employers to keep their employees on payroll. And so, yeah, you didn't have the massive spike in unemployment. Everyone stayed in the old jobs that they had pre-pandemic. And the the big great reshuffle where people moved careers, moved physically across the country, and just took advantage of the pandemic to do to you know quit their miserable old lives and build something brand new, much more YOLO, didn't really happen. And that is really a, a key part of why the U.S. is doing very well. And I kind of feel like one of the weaknesses in my book, maybe I didn't go into too much detail on the difference between the US and and Europe on this one that like, I was like, this is a great Phoenix economy story where we're rising from the ashes stronger than we ever were before. But I didn't talk that much about the degree to which that was a phenomenon that just didn't happen in a lot of the rest of the rich world. And just to add the great reshuffle is really intertwined with the first thing I talked about that stimulus, because it's easier to reshuffle if you've got a stimulus check or two or three or you know your 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 monthly childcare check like if you have that security the enhanced unemployment all of that they really came together intertwined 
to support people to make those kinds of changes. And can we just like shout out to the two things which were super key here? Number one was the student loan repayment moratorium. And number two, which is even more important, was the eviction moratorium. And that was, and this was like, again, this is something that is wild to me, like with hindsight, is that it was the Centers for Disease Control. It was the CDC who said that for medical reasons, for public health reasons, we needed an eviction moratorium in this country. It is. I mean, there are a lot of policymakers, though, who, who argue that housing is a healthcare issue. As well, no, well. it clearly is. I mean, I, I mean it was a 100% legitimate healthcare, public health intervention. You do not want people losing their housing and being thrown out onto the street in the middle of a pandemic. That is a terrible idea. And what the CDC did was exactly the right thing to do. But the point is that if you know that you are safe in your home, you know, then you can take certain risks that you couldn't otherwise take in terms of like quitting your job and trying to do something else. Yeah, it was really a perfect storm. What what's sad is I feel like it's kind of similar if you go back to, you know, the New Deal, like all the stimulus back then. But people really liked all that stuff, or maybe they didn't. I don't know uh, exactly. Some people did. It seemed like that had a legacy and that had legs. But the politics around all the stimulus that got done has changed so much. And if something like this happens, a big shock like this again, I just wonder if we would ever respond in the same way. You know, even this was the stimulus started in the Trump administration. Yeah, this is right? again. I mean, this, this is this is a chapter I have in my book called the, the Armies of the Public Fisc. Right, that Steve Mnuchin is the great unsung hero of the <laughs> right. of the of the pandemic, and he managed to push through this astonishing fiscal stimulus and the eviction moratorium and all the rest of it. And now you look at the Republicans in Congress, and you're like, there is no way. You know, there is no way they would be okay with that kind of thing. And so, you know, we've won, we won the last war and we know how to win the war, but the, but like, it is absolutely possible that the, you know, elected Republicans will unilaterally disarm us come the next month. And just the Democrats too. I feel like they got so much political pushback for a lot of, of a lot of this stuff. The last stimulus um, under Biden, it was widely criticized for, you know, driving inflation up. Yeah, and that's the problem. The dominant narrative was that the inflation was fully a function of the stimulus, and it was multifactorial in, in many ways. But even among you know centrist Democrats, if you just ask people, especially if they're kind of middle class, what caused inflation to a person, they will point to the stimulus. Which is which is fine. Like I, that is a trade off I will make every day and twice on Sundays. You know, if if you ask me, would you rather have a European economic stagnation? or American-style economic growth with inflation, I will choose the economic growth with inflation every time, especially given that inflation is even higher in Europe. Yes. I did want to mention, what are the headwinds upcoming for the, the U.S. economy? Well, one, I think, is that you know Trump gets elected and that's a headwind. But then as I was like preparing for this and coming up with my five, I was kind of like, this the stimulus, the number one reason was under Trump, so maybe it'll be fine. Yeah, there's if you look at if you look at the markets and if you listen to the sort of Davos consensus, it's that no one is too worried about Trump being president on an economic level. I remember vividly in 2016, um, Justin Wolfers coming out and saying 
on the eve of the election that if Trump got elected, the stock market would fall by like 20% and we'd have a massive market crash. And he got elected and the market went up rather than down. And it just kept on going up. And the great sort of economic fear of Trump turned out to be misplaced. And as I say, like when we hit this unexpected emergency in the form of COVID, Steve Mnuchin, his Treasury Secretary, really came through and did some really good stuff. And it is certain that a second Trump term will be significantly different from the first Trump term, and he probably won't have the more sort of mainstream centrist technocrats like Mnuchin and Gary Cohn that he had in the first term. But I have yet to find someone who's genuinely, you know, saying that like another Trump term would be terrible for GDP growth. Well, that's that's partly a, a function of a carryover or dynamic where negative partisanship is so high now that Republicans obstruct anything that Democrats mm. try to do that's positive for the economy. And if there is a Republican in office, they'll stop doing that. And yet, and yet somehow, you know, the economy seems to be doing just fine. Let's move on to TikTok, eh? If you don't want to hear ads right now and want to have access to a bunch of great Slate stuff, sign up for Slate Plus. With Slate Plus, you get ad-free listening on all Slate accounts, plus unlimited access to all Slate.com content and our members-only newsletter, and an exclusive bonus segment at the end of this episode. And this one you do not want to miss today, unless maybe you're trying to eat healthy. But you should still listen to it because it's about ice cream and chocolate chip ice cream. We reveal our favorite flavors and talk about a lot of ice cream stuff. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so Elizabeth. Yes. You're on TikTok, right? I am, but I, I don't post very much. You don't post. But no. this is also one of the great things about TikTok is it's not it's not really one of those social networks like, you know, Facebook where everyone is constantly telling everyone else what they're up to. It is one of those networks where 1% of the user base produces 99% of the content. And before it was TikTok, it was an app called Musical.ly. And TikTok, when ByteDance bought Musical.ly and rebranded it as TikTok. And Musical.ly was basically what it says on the tin. It was a thing where you could take a piece of music and dance to it and mime to it. And it really took off. And it's always been based on music. And now it is in this massive fight with the biggest record label in the world, Universal Music Group, because Universal is saying, you're using all of our music, you're making an absolute fuck ton of money. So pay us just like every other streamer pays us, you know, Spotify pays us, YouTube pays us, Instagram pays us. Every time anyone uses our music, you need to pay us too. And TikTok is like, can we give you almost nothing? And Universal is like, no, you cannot give us almost nothing. So now there is a standoff and no UMG music can be used on TikTok. I'm a little pro TikTok here, though, because the TikTok has been responsible for so much new music discovery and large publishing music publishers really need that. 
And so if, if you completely cut off TikTok, it's, it's, you know, they're going back to an older model where that doesn't necessarily work. And when you consider that there was a stat that 67% of users are more likely to seek out new music after having heard it on TikTok. Right. But if you think about the new music discovery mechanisms, whether it's Spotify or whether it's the radio or whatever, all of those new music, music discovery mechanisms have historically always paid royalties to the record labels. Just because you're using a streaming service to discover music doesn't mean that like that's a reason for that service not to pay royalties. Yeah, I'm not sure the artists, though, believe that TikTok, you know, the rates they're asking for are somehow more damaging than what Spotify does. Spotify isn't damaging. Well, I mean, in terms of not paying them rates that they believe they should be paid. There was a comment from Jack Antonoff who said who said he was pissed off that, um, you know, UMG did this without really talking to the artists. And the artists who don't really need this are people like Jack Antonoff who are not going to live and die on TikTok. But they don't really buy UMG's logic. I think he buys the logic. He wanted to be more like in the room and consulted, but I think he buys the logic. I think artists want to be paid. Don't you think that, Emily? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, what UMG is doing here is just playing hardball. And apparently they get less money or TikTok pays lower rates than the other platforms and they want more money. Um, and even though TikTok is only 1% of UMG's revenue, you know, they want that number to go up. And I think uh, unsaid or less discussed is the AI angle here because um, one of UMG's demand is just like tougher restrictions and monitoring around AI features because that's like the latest existential threat to everyone who makes stuff right now is AI. Um, and we saw last year there was that AI generated Drake and Weekend song that caused a lot of chaos and upset and sort of like woke up a lot of people to the fact that like AI could be maybe a new threat or challenge for the industry. So one of the big asks from Universal Music Group is like, let's make sure that there are protections against this. Let's make sure if our artist music gets used in something AI generated that, you know, we get credit for it or we're paid for it, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a really important part of this. Exactly. AI, AI is going out there being trained on a whole corpus of UMG music and UMG wants to make money off that. There's a really good profile by John Seabrook in The New Yorker, which I can recommend, where like, on the one hand, it's clearly a threat, but on the other hand, it's also clearly an amazing opportunity. And yeah. all of this AI gives music producers the ability to just be their most creative and most best selves and just be much more productive and make much better stuff. And UM, UMG is excited about that, but they just want to be doing it themselves. They don't want to outsource that ability to random people on TikTok. And so that's part of it. But the the the, the core of it is really this question of, is TikTok broadcasting music to the masses and therefore needing to pay a license? Or is it like, free advertising for artists and the labels should just be grateful that they're on TikTok at all. And I think the answer there is like, it's advertising, but there's no particular reason why the advertiser using the music should be getting the music for free. And, yeah. you know, and that we see this, it reminds me so much of like, you know, every so often some cable company will lose you know, Disney programming because there's a big fight about how much Disney wants to be paid by the cable company. And there's, you know, and eventually they come to an agreement. I feel like it's one of those. TikTok has just been 
so used to getting music for almost nothing for most of its existence that it just is struggling to come around to the idea that it actually has to pay for it. But it's clearly so core to the TikTok value proposition in terms of TikTok's own audience that, yeah, of course they should pay. And you could see how important it is because UMG pulled all its music. And now, I mean, every story about this has, you know, shares TikToks from a bunch of creators who are like, whining about how they don't have the music in their videos right now, you know, getting on their knees or like ha having to sing Taylor Swift songs like themselves. <laughs> Eef. Oof. Oof. The creators have always, just to be clear about this, the creators have always on TikTok had the ability to make videos using someone else's music for free. They have never needed to pay any money to the people whose music they are using. And that is an amazing innovation that we now have with social media and with TikTok is that we have the ability to allow people to effectively like remix music and use it in interesting new ways that the original artists might never have intended and upload it to TikTok and see it go viral and see it make the song popular. And all of that at zero cost to the creator. And the reason you can do that at zero cost to the creator is because you is because behind the scenes, TikTok is monetizing it by selling ads. And then TikTok can use some of that ad money to pay the music label. That seems to be the sensible way to do it. No, Elizabeth? Well, no, I, I would say there are two things at play here. One is that I wouldn't discount the value of TikTok for artists, especially if they're not, you know, top 10 big names. I yes. think it's very important for them to be on TikTok. They've sure. all been told by their labels that they have to be on TikTok. And a lot of them have invested, you know, a lot of time and effort into doing that. Another thing is that most of TikTok's base is not you know, professional creators. It's people who would do the same thing if they were uploading a family video of their kids dancing a, you know, whoever onto Facebook. Nobody thinks about that as a scenario where you're ripping off artists. No, because Facebook pays money for that. Well, TikTok does too. It, it, what they're asking for is a discount. No, it doesn't. It pays almost nothing. Aren't they paying $100 million a year? And then by comparison, Meta is paying like 200? Twice as much. So it's not, it's not nothing. It's they're asking for a lower rate. Like they're not asking for nothing. No, they're paying. They're paying almost nothing because because the amount of music, like YouTube, is is the comparison here, not Meta. YouTube pays billions and billions of dollars to music labels because that music is the core of what is being consumed. And TikTok is similarly just a, a network based on music. Music is at the heart of TikTok. And that's why it's used as a discovery mechanism. And that's why it's so important to record labels. And I 100% agree with you that it is important to artists. And I'm not saying that artists shouldn't be on TikTok. And I'm not saying that music shouldn't be on TikTok. Music should be on TikTok. It should just be paid for. But there's also another factor here. If you're going to compare YouTube to TikTok, TikTok is very short format. There are a lot of ways to use music in TikTok that would be justifiable under fair use law. But when you see people putting entire songs on YouTube, which is longer format, and there are a lot of there's a lot of music that's just on YouTube with literally like a blank screen and whatever the music is. And you don't see that on TikTok. So I think there is a difference. Yeah, I, I agree that it's a different use case. But I also think that if you look at the, you know, ByteDance is worth, what, you know, $75 billion or something. If they're paying $100 million a year for music rights and music is at the heart of everything they do, that just, yeah, there, there's a disconnect there. Yeah, they should, UMG should play hardball. I mean, I know these creators don't like it. 
And yes, some of the big artists have complained, but I mean, at the end of the day, if everyone's making more money and it seems like that's fine. And if there's these AI protections get passed, um, I mean, UMG is the biggest music publisher recording company. And so the, what it does is going to be, you know, they're going to be a leader, what everyone else will wind up doing too. So I feel like it's important to get this right. Yeah, that, that I think that's that that's the really important thing here is that this is, this is not just a fight between UMG and TikTok, that all the, the other major record labels all have what's known as MFN clauses, most favorite. Basically, what it means is that if TikTok and Universal come to an agreement, then automatically under the existing contracts that the other record labels have, TikTok will be paying all of the other record labels more as well because the idea is that they have a disagreement that the other record labels aren't going to get paid less than Universal is. So it, this will be a much bigger thing than just the Universal artists. Everyone will get paid more. They'll get paid more out of the ad revenue that is going to TikTok. And that means that TikTok will make slightly less profit and the artists will end up making more. So I'm happy with that. Well, I, I also have a quick question about the AI stuff. Uh, what, one thing that I don't understand is how TikTok would be able to police AI if they negotiated some kind of broad agreement with UMG. You know, most of the people who are going after platforms for AI stuff. They're not going directly after Facebook or Twitter or whatever. They're going after OpenAI or these, you know, companies that do generative AI. And I'm not sure how, you know, if we're talking about broad rules, how would TikTok ensure that they can keep AI-generated stuff off the platform? The, the question is basically happens when someone uploads a video with music that is not coming from any kind of a record label that's just been generated by an AI. And the answer is that we all, the whole technology behind payments is that whenever anyone uploads an, a video with music, it's very easy to just effectively like Shazam that music. You can see exactly what that music is. You can identify it very easily. You can work out what record label it comes from, and then you can pay the royalties to that record label rather than to some other record label, right? You, we already have, and TikTok has been for years, using technology which identifies music and identifies which label it comes from. So the corollary of that is that if someone uploads AI music that does not come from any record label, then it is very easy to identify that as, wait, this is not legitimate music. This is not coming from any record label. It is very easy to identify it as AI and say, no, I'm sorry, you can't upload that because you, what, you, what you've done there is you've uploaded, we, we, you've uploaded the kind of music that we aren't cool with. Well, not if, like, if I'm a musician and I write my own stuff and I play it on YouTube or whatever, or TikTok, like that's not sourced to anything. Exactly. So the only thing you need is is like a small little carve out for stuff that people are genuinely creating themselves and haven't uploaded through any kind of like rights management. Like nowadays, it's, it's super interesting. Ten years ago, ninety percent of the songs uploaded to rights management platforms came from big record labels. Now it's like ten percent. Now everyone in their basement is just you know creating new stuff and uploading it with all the correct rights and stuff through these rights management platforms. And it's and they generally do that before they upload the TikTok. That's the whole point, right? That's because everyone is trying to use TikTok as a way for people to, to discover their music. They want that music to be up there, you know, logged and indexed before they upload the video. And so that bit, like once it's up there and logged and everything, then 
TikTok is in the clear, right? Then TikTok can start paying them royalties for what they did. And if Universal has their own beef with that creator saying, wait, you used AI that you trained on Universal artists, that music is not kosher for some reason, then TikTok can, then Universal can take it up with the creator. Like TikTok is not liable at that point. But let's, let's move on to typos, shall we? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily, tell me about Lyft's astonishing typo. <laughs> Uh, Lyft, you know, had earnings release earlier this week. And in its release, it said one of its profit margins measures um, was going to expand by 500 basis points or five percentage points this year. Um, But actually, it it was only 50 basis points, which is 0.5 percentage points, which is a lot less. But when at first, when people believe the 500 basis points thingy, the stock soared, And then, you know, ultimately they said, whoopsies, it was a typo. We're so sorry. The CEO came out and said, this is on me. Um, And everyone had a great old time memeing and laughing about this on Twitter. It was a big mistake, right? The the, the, the old, (laughs) it was called like adjusted EBITDA margin, basically, like the inherent profitability of the company. Yes. Was 1.6%. And they were like, that's going up by 500 basis points. And everyone's like, wait, it's going up from 1.6% to 6.6%? That is a huge increase. And so they bid up the stock. Um, I think it rose like 67% or something. Mm -hmm. But the point is, this was all in the earnings that came out at half past four, 30 minutes after the market closed. And the whole point of releasing earnings after the market closes 
is that, you know, you have some time. You have all the way until 9.30 the following morning for people to work out what is going on and try and work out what the new correct price of the stock should be, right? So in theory, if there's a typo in the press release and it's, and it's caught within an hour, which it was, or certainly within an hour and a half, then no harm, no foul. You're like, oh, wait, there's a typo. Fix the typo. Certainly by 9.30 in the morning when the market opens, everyone will understand that there's a typo. They will have listened to the call where the CFO was like, no, 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 we, we fucked up on the press release. We got it wrong. It's 50. It's not 500. And no harm, no foul. So all of this is fine in theory, but then you run into this thing in practice, which is after hours trading. So what the fuck is up with that? <laughs> Different kind of trader. Those are not the people who are looking at, you know, longer term horizons for Lyft. They're people who get excited by a tiny development and, it, you know. Aren't they just robots? Isn't it just algorithms? or It's algorithms who are listening to the earnings call and, and listening to the CFO say, whoops, I meant 50, not 500, and then immediately selling. So they're very sophisticated robots if they're robots. No, but a lot of it is automated trades and they see... The numbers reported are seen, I think, and then trades are made. There are also just people who trade into volatility. And so once it starts, there's a kind of momentum thing that happens. But my, my question is at a deeper level here, which is the stock market is open from 9.30 to 4. We all understand that's the trading day. Stocks trade between 9.30 and 4. Why are they trading at like five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock in the evening? I understand that, like, as you say, the robots and the volatility junkies love it. Like, generally, in after hours trading, the bid offer spread is wider. So there's more opportunity to go in and do high frequency trading and make more money. The question I have, which I have again, like, you know, a theory about this, but the, the, the deep question I have is, so, like, why is it allowed to exist? Why is the SEC okay with this? Because the SEC's job is to protect investors, right? And it's pretty clear if you look at what happened to the Lyft share price in after hours trading, there's a lot of danger in there and people aren't being protected. Like, I don't, I think the SEC should be more aggressive in terms of saying, you know, I'm sorry, but 9.30 to 4 is enough. You don't need to trade more than that. And so can you, you know, so we're just going to force you to trade only between 9.30 and 4. In theory, the reason it exists is because it hasn't been banned, right? The reason it exists is because I own a stock, I want to sell it, you want to buy it. We are two free Americans and we can make our own bargains between us and agree to trade that stock between us at any time of the night or the weekend or any time we like, right? I can, you and I can make a deal on a Saturday afternoon where I'm like, okay, I will sell you by this Disney stock for $12 a share. And then that's, you know, and we can draw up a contract and can be legally binding and we can do that. So the, I think the real reason for this is just like, it's legally difficult for the SEC to ban that kind of activity. And so, you know, this, these after hours exchanges have cropped up where people are like, look, you guys want to trade after hours, it's less liquid, it's more dangerous, it's more risky. But if you want to do it, who are we to stop you? And then people are like, oh, awesome, we get to trade the earnings release as it comes out and play, <laughs> you know, play these crazy games. And the SEC is like, okay, whatever, you know, 
the SEC is ultimately just saying, like, if you guys want to do this dumb, foolish thing, just go ahead, knock yourself out, lose a bunch of money, whatever. Like, just do it. We don't, we like, okay. You know, they just don't care enough. And it does turn out this is a story that has a happy ending for Lyft, which we should note has misspelled its name. <laughs> and so, Yeah, if you're going to spell Lyft with a Y, then like at that point, all bets are off. Just don't trust anything in the press release. Exactly. But anyway, by, by Wednesday, the day after the typo, the stock, it turned out the earnings report, though the, the profit margins weren't as insane as they initially said, Lyft's earnings report was pretty good. And it wound up that the stock rose 35%. I haven't looked at it as we're taping on Friday, but the stock is is up and um, investors are happy with the company. So it's kind of like a fairy tale, basically. <laughs> Still, you know, it would have risen just as much without the after hours trading. Yeah. So some people made and lost money after hours. Yeah. Like I'm, I am not crying any tears <laughs> for the people who made and lost money in after hours trading. All of those people right. walked in with their eyes open. And I think that's ultimately the, re- the reason why the SEC isn't cracking down on it, right? They're like, on the one hand, our job is investor protection. And so we have created this clean, well-lighted space between the hours of 9.30 and 4, where you, you investors are protected. And then if you want to go off and like trade stocks in the back alley somewhere on a, you know, at seven o'clock at night, that's on you. You know, don't, don't blame us if you get your face ripped off. Let's have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yep. My number is 20 and that's percent. And that's 20% more people die in January than March. So what? <laughs> the month you're most likely to die in is January. And the, the day that it is the deadliest, according to CDC data going back to 1999, is January 1st. <gasps> and there is uh, th- a Those New Year's Eve parties will literally kill you. <laughs> What's happening? So the, the, the reason for it is that mostly if you're middle-aged or over, you're a little bit less capable of handling environmental changes. So there are higher rates of death from heart disease and respiratory illnesses, particularly. And and wait, what? why do environmental changes happen on the 1st of January? They're, they're more like winter diseases. So it's also higher in December. You know, it's, it's higher in months where you have extremely cold weather. Hmm. And partly because if you have heart problems, your blood vessels constrict and that can affect you know, problems if you if you have some existing condition. And then the respiratory stuff, as we all know, you know, increases in the winter no matter what. And then and then if you've survived all the way until March, at that point you're fine and you're unlikely to Yes, you're least likely to die in July, according to the chart that I saw. Is this January thing? Remember a few years ago the wealth tax rules were changing and a bunch of these like old rich people were like desperately hanging on to so, or the, no, they were trying to die early yeah, no, in no, December. There, there, Is there was like one year. I, I remember Paul Krugman <laughs> called it like the, 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 the throw grandma from the train act or something. There yes! was one year where <laughs> if you died with like literally any amount of money, your heirs would pay no inheritance tax. And so everyone was like, grandma, please stay alive until January the 1st. So that like, you know, at that point, we don't yeah. need to pay inheritance tax. And then towards the end of the year, Everyone was like, can you please die by December the 31st? Because <laughs> otherwise we're going to have to pay inheritance tax. Yeah. Is this like a tax thing? Or like people trying to make it to the new year? They're like, oh, you know, if I make it to, to this thing, I'll have like 100 years under my belt or something. You know, is there a psychological situation? I'm sure there there? Is. I'm sure there is. My number is 8.5%, which is 
what UBS reckons that a bond investor, your typical bond investor in like, you know, investment investment grade bonds is going to return in 2024, which is kind of really interesting on a bunch of different levels. On the one hand, as we know, bonds are yielding quite a lot right now because of the Fed. And so you have like a base yield above 5% for these bonds. And then everyone expects the Fed to start cutting rates this year. And so if the Fed cuts rates, then yields are going to go down, prices are going to go up. And so between the high yields and the price improvement, total return, they reckon is going to be about 8.5%. And that's a really low risk investment. Like if you buy bonds right now, the chances of you losing money this year on that investment is minuscule. Because, you know, they're investment grade bonds, so they're not going to default, and yields are much are not particularly likely to go up from current levels. And you're already getting a nice healthy yield on the bonds that you're buying, so it's paying the coupon. So what I'm saying here is that the kind of safe and boring, if you want to be really, really safe and boring, you can get eight and a half percent right now on your investments. And that's got to be something where near an all-time high. And so that gives you an idea of just how amazing it is that the stock market has been going up and hitting all of these new highs because the return you need on stocks obviously needs to be higher than eight and a half percent to make it worth investing in stocks rather than bonds. Well, Felix. Yes. It almost sounds like you're giving listeners financial advice. But I would never do that. No, no. Take no financial advice from me. Are you going to do a Charlotte Coles number? I will not allow that to happen. He cannot front run my number. <laughs> <laughs> My number is 50,000. That is the amount that New York Magazine writer Charlotte Coles put in a shoebox. In dollars, in cash. In dollars, in cash, put in a shoebox and handed someone from the back of a Mercedes in front of her New York City home after she was scammed. And she wrote about it for the cut in New York Magazine. And Charlotte Coles, it turns out, is their financial advice columnist. Now, it's hard to, you can't make it up. You can't make it up. She was scammed. It was an elaborate one. She was called up. It's something, something Amazon, something, something fake, fake. We know that you're the last four digits of your social security number. We know your kid's name, something, something. This is very secret. The FTC is is involved. The FBI is involved. And she fell for it. Um, and you can read all about it on New York Magazine. And I really wanted to talk about it, but it kind of came out too late after we had planned out the episode, but I wanted to ask Elizabeth. Yeah, like, as our in-house <laughs> financial advice yes. columnist, if you fell for this scam, would number one, would you ever admit it in public? <laughs> and number two, if you did admit it in public, would you ever pr- produce another financial advice column again? Probably not. But then I, this would never happen to me because I just don't have 50K sitting around in cash. <laughs> She'd be like, here's freelancer. Apparently, apparently <laughs> she like inherited it from her grandfather. Like this was this was her literally. No, her she inheritance. says in the piece, she says some of it's inheritance, some of it's saved up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She tries to keep a lot of money saved. So I mean, on the one hand, that would that would indicate this is a good person to take financial advice from. Someone who can have that much saved up, that's good. Although we can argue too much in cash should have been some investments. Why was it just sitting in cash? But it's a good time to sit in cash. So who knows? That's a whole other conversation. But the key, yeah, the key question is, Elizabeth, would you ever admit to being to being scammed in this way as a person who people turn to for financial advice in Slate's pay dirt column? 
Uh, not publicly. <laughs> I don't think. I, I think I would tell my friends about it, you know, and my family to make sure they didn't get scammed. And it's worth noting that the scam was seemed to be kind of elaborate. Like she she asked the supposed FBI people for their badges, badge numbers, and you know, documentation, and called the number they gave her that was spoofing like an FBI number. So, so, uh, she like, didn't call the number. That's the crazy thing. They were like, look up the number for the FBI and I will call you from that number. Like it's so so easy to spoof a number that you're calling from. All she needed to do was try and call them back on that number and she would have realized it was all a scam. I feel like sometimes you can just get into some weird loop where you can be scammed. Like you can just like something gets activated in your brain and then once it is, you just do you just make bad decisions. I feel like it, it could maybe happen to anyone. I mean, everyone, a lot of people, you know, on, on the social media networks were like, this would never happen to me. I'm so much smarter. And da, 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 da. This is unbelievable. But I do feel like there is a mechanism, a brain mechanism that flips. And then once it does, you wind up in the backseat of a Mercedes handing over $50,000 in cash in a shoebox to someone you don't know. On which note, I think that's it for us this week. Many thanks to Patrick for, for being here in D.C. Many thanks to Jared Downing for producing the show from New York. M many thanks to Shana Roth for being our fairy godmother and keeping us all on track. I will be back on Tuesday with Carrie Sun, who has written a memoir called Private Equity, all about her time working at a hedge fund in New York. So good. Emily loved Such it. Such a good book. I loved it. You should go out and buy it. So that's coming out on Tuesday. And then after that, we'll be back the following Saturday and every Saturday thereafter with a regular Slate Money. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.